turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 10. We're spending some real time here in this passage, and uh, it's this little uh, digression that Paul makes in verses 1 through 13. It's very pastoral. He is uh, worried about the same thing that any good pastor should worry about even today, and that is that the hope of the gospel would not be lost on the people he'd been preaching to, to the church at Ephesus there. He wanted them to know that even though he was in jail, he was happy to be in jail for preaching the gospel to them because it was the power of God to save them, to uh, make a people who were not his people there, the Gentiles, as you see it uh, in verse 6, to make a people who were not his people, his people. And then in verse 7, to make a man who was not his man into God's man. As we kind of review just a little bit down through that passage, you remember we said that Paul was the, the best illustration in this because the power of the gospel is such that evil and sin will not stop the work of God in this world. God didn't uh, create Paul in his mother's womb, as it says in Psalms 139. He knit him together in his mother's womb. He knew exactly the days that were written before him, for him before there were any of them, right? As Psalms 139 so eloquently says about all of us, God knew that he was going to have Paul write 13 chapters of the New Testament. He knew that Paul was going to be the greatest missionary to the Gentiles that ever existed. And whenever Paul ended up killing Christians, he didn't look down and go, oh, what am I going to do? God knew exactly what he was going to do. So he met Paul on the road to Damascus, just like he's met each one of us. He revealed his son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the gospel changed Paul from the great sinner he was into the great saint he was to become. Right? And that has been our hope kind of through this whole thing. Now, as that happens, it becomes corporate. And that is the section we're in here in the book of Ephesians. We're in these indicatives in the first three chapters where God tells us everything that he's done for us. And then in chapter 4, we begin the imperatives of who we are to be before him. Do you see that there? I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, Paul's reminding again that he's in a Roman jail, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he's going to give us all these imperatives of how we're to act in a corporate manner as a church, as mom and dads, as, as believers to the outside world. But it's in 310 that he brings that into focus. And for me, this is such a rich passage. We, we're, we've had, uh, this will be our second sermon on this, and last week I just kept it simple because I want you to know over and over, beloved, it's talking about you. You're the church. You are the redeemed of the Lord. You are the people called out of this world. You are the people that God split the sky and showed you who his son was, and you bowed and repented of your sins, and and he has made you into the church. You're the church. You're you're the one that reflects God's wisdom. Lloyd-Jones would say, uh, you are the prism which God's glory shines through and reflects or refracts his manifold glory to all the world. That's who you are. And you say, well... (laughs) I got up kind of late. I don't feel like that this morning. I don't care. That's who God's making you to be, and it's his wisdom. So we looked at that last week. Let me just read that verse. We'll do a quick prayer, and we'll get into the sermon, because this is just me getting warmed up a little bit. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Gracious Heavenly Fathers, we come this morning 
I love your people. Uh, I love that they sit with their Bibles open, ready to be fed the truth that brings them life. Father, I'm not worthy of that task. Only you can make me worthy, and only you can do that work through the power of your Holy Spirit. So I just pray that through my simple words this morning that you feed hearts that are hungry for your truth, that you feed lives that need the encouragement of this time in their life to live the week that they're called to live. Father, do that work that is above and beyond anything I could ever do in your people this day. In Jesus' name, amen. We're the church, as I stated last week, and previously we've been working on this. We are the church. We're purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, as it says in 1 Peter. It goes on further to say, we are the church. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We're the church. We're the only eternal organization that will never be prevailed upon or overcome by the forces of evil. The gates of hell will surely not prevail against the Lord's church. We are the church. Life and death, heaven and hell, are bound up in our hands and in our mission to spread the gospel. We are the church, and all of history is redemptive history. And it points alone to what God is doing The church, there is no other story or history being written by God but that of redemptive history. And redemptive history tells the collective story of the plan of God. You see it there in chapter 1, verse 10. I've read it over and over. His his plan as the plan for the fullness of time, that is, in all of time, exactly at the right time, to unite all things in him, that is, Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, that is, to recapitulate everything in Christ. That is that those who believe in Christ will be eternally with him forever and those who have rejected Christ will be eternally judged forever. Why does the church play this prominent role, this important role of prominence? Why is all of biblical history the history of God's people and his redemption of them? That should be well self-evident because it is all of what God is doing. But I often speak with people that have a extra uneasy feeling and fear regarding what they see and experience in the world today. It's that dichotomy that stands before us, that uh, maybe better dilemma that we see the glories of the church, and this is what Paul was concerned about in this digression, yet we see the evil in the world and in the culture today because you understand the political and social implications of the way people are living. The way they're acting, the way they're living and lying, and the, the, you see the rampant crime, the rampant sexual immorality, and the violence in our street, and the, people are fearful for their children and their grandchildren's lives. They, they worry about those things. They hear the lies the culture produces, and it leaves them uneasy, and it should. It should at some level, unsure and fearful. And as those lies persist, they allow them to become louder and louder and push away the promises of God for the church. So they seek out truth they seek out what the preacher has to say what the scriptures have to say but beloved if you read scripture i challenge each one of you here today and you know this about me if you've been around over the last nine months of my tenure here you need to read scripture read it every day be the first one every day that you preach the gospel to So that you can go out into this world and you can see it and you can handle and hold on and live in the promises of god given to the church you should not have fear you should never have fear you should be fearless you should take heart every time you see something because everything that you see only supports the promises of god 
If you read and believe scripture, you're going to gain courage. You're going to gain the ability to stand fast in the evil day. Stand fast on the eternal promises of God. If you read and believe scripture, you can be assured because the evil you see in the collapse of secularism right before our very eyes in this day and time proves God's promises and has already been defeated in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Christ has defeated death. It's going to be the focus over the next few weeks, isn't it? It's what Easter's all about. The renewal of life. Do you see the plants popping up out of the ground? I took a picture of one here in my backyard. Just come up in the middle of nowhere. It's a beautiful little plant. Don't even know what it is. Sent a picture of it to Frank. I said, listen, this little gal just popped up overnight. She is beautiful. Hope springs eternal. Christ has defeated death. And all the enemy has left in his arsenal is a cadre of lies. That's all he has. He's been totally defeated. All he has is his lies. And you see our world today, and that's why what you see in the world should prove Christ is true to you and what God says in his word, because you see those lies playing out. The chaos we see played out in the culture is a direct result of the futility and emptiness and death of those lies and the empty promises they represent. It is either Christ or chaos, beloved. You choose. It's either Christ or chaos, and when Christ is refused, chaos ensues. And this is what we're seeing in secularism's uh, last capitulations, if you will, is that that chaos ensues and it kind of destroys itself. The enemy's lies are being exposed daily and God's wisdom being proven daily, and that is only going to become more and more evident as secularism, as popular culture capitulates and fails and falls apart all around us. So proposition this morning or today's main point is just this. The manifold wisdom of God displayed in the church makes known God's victory over evil to all the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Therefore, such wisdom spreads to all of creation. Let me read that again. The manifold wisdom of God is displayed in the church makes known God's victory over evil to all the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies and therefore spreads such wisdom to all of creation. That is in the defeat of death and the living of the saints. Those are the two simple points. In the defeat of death and the living of the saints, we see God's wisdom play out in this world every day. In the defeat of death and the living of the saints. It displays the great glory to both the good and the bad rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Scripture tells us there's good angels and bad angels. The bad angels have been thrown down with heaven, thrown down out of heaven with their leader, Satan. And that Satan is still at work in our world is obvious with the world that we see around us. So it not only makes a testimony of God's wisdom to the good angels, but to the bad angels. And because to the good and bad angels, we see that testimony go out throughout all the earth because the church is in the earth. So it is in the defeat of death and the, the showing forth of the lives of the enemy because of the defeat of death. And in how the saints live, God displays his wisdom in this world. Very well then, what is that wisdom? How has God utterly and wholly defeated evil in Christ and is manifested in his people, the church? Well, turn with me, if you will, to a verse in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Just two or three pages over to the right, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, chapter 2. Just one verse there this morning that's going to show us the utter defeat 
of the ruler of this world, that he's been stamped out, he's been done away with. Not only has he been done away with, but this passage leaves no stone unturned to say that he's been made a fool of. And being made a fool of continually as his lies are exposed in this world. So here it is. You see it there? Verse 15, chapter 2. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Those rulers and authorities, same Greek words that we're finding in Ephesians 3, same Greek words that Paul's going to use in Ephesians 6, same Greek words that you're going to find in in uh, the first chapter of the book of Ephesians because that's what's on Paul's mind. Not only on his mind in Ephesians, but in Colossians because he wrote both of them. Those rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, both the good and the bad angels, know the outcome of the story. And the outcome tells them that the bad ones, that they've been defeated. That's why all they have is a cadre of lies to go on. But yet, because there's lost people in this world, they follow those lies. But let's talk about that defeat. He, it says in verse 15, he... That means God, that being God in Christ, has disarmed the rulers and authorities. And that word disarmed in the Greek, it means to take or to strip off the clothing from, to undress, to disrobe, to strip off. That is, he, God's champion, his savior, has stripped off, exposed, made naked the enemy and his greatest tool, that is death. He exposed the impotence of the power and made it known by putting them, it says, to open shame, by triumphing over them in him. In fact, the very thing, the very thing that he held sway over all of earth is the fear of death. He triumphed him over him in death. And this exposition or this stripping off, this exposing, what is it that God is exposing? And that is the power that the enemy held over man and death. He has defeated death and exposed them for what they are, and that is powerless. All they have are lies the most of, that most of culture is now consuming in the chaos that proves that the promises of the world are empty and defeated and unable to give any sort of semblance of life. Hebrews 2.14, I'll just read it for you, says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, partook of that same thing, that flesh and blood, because he was to destroy death by dying, right? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. But this verse brings in something new. Not only did he destroy death, but he destroyed the enemy that held sway over death, and that is the devil. The devil's defeated. Amen? The devil is defeated. There it is, beloved, that Christ came as a man to die as a man to destroy the one who has power of death. And not only the power of death but death itself christ has stripped the enemy naked he has exposed the lies for what they are and now has the the, uh, the enemy and his utter impotence and his lies are on display for the whole world to see because it says in that colossians passage he put them to open shame triumphing over them in him he's put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him Listen, that's beautiful language. That means that he is parading their defeat for all to see. All who will have eyes to see, Christ is exposing them as naked and powerless and parades that defeat around for a whole world to see. R.C. Sproul says this about this passage. Sproul writes, The image is of a conquering Roman general parading his vanquished and humiliated enemies before his chariot. That is what that triumphing over them. 
You see, the Romans used to strip their enemies naked, tie them, force them to walk defeated in a parade. That's what Christ is doing with death. That's why it looks like it does when we look out. That describes our world to a large extent, doesn't it? That they've bought into these lies and they're reveling in the death and the lies of the enemy and Christ is exposing it all. How does he do this? How is this witness, how is this wisdom displayed and born? How does God manifest it to the world? Beloved, this passage in Ephesians says that the church displays the manifold wisdom of God. Read that verse 10 again in Ephesians chapter 3. So that through the church... So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Catch that. Might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I contend to you this morning, the scripture is clear that the rulers and authorities knew of this defeat. But they still go with their lies. And there's many lost in this world who follow those lies and they're blinded. And we're going to get to that. But it's now being made known. How's it being made known? It's a timing factor, a chronological phrase that the Bible gives us. He says it might now be made known something that wasn't known before. Might now be made known what happened, what changed, what event took place that is now making this wisdom of God known to everyone. This manifold wisdom of God that was not known before but is now known. Of course, the answer is the cross. It's a resurrection from the dead. It's that one thing that defeated all the enemy that that parades them as defeated is that Christ on the third day as he went into the ground from his crucifixion on the third day come out of the ground alive. (laughs) That is what changed. That is what has now been made known. The cross is the way that this shame was brought upon the lives of the devil. Anyone that truly believes what has happened at the cross has to see the lies of the devil. The cross is the way that this shame was brought upon the lies of the devil. The cross purchased this victory and is how God in Christ has put them to open shame. It's how he's exposed them. It's how he's stripped them bare, naked. Because through the whole world was plunged to darkness and death. Of, at the death of Christ, it arose to everlasting life just three days later to make an open mockery of the power of death and the one who has and holds the lies over death. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 say this. Just a couple verses before there. And you who were dead in your trespasses have, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to his cross. Nailing it to his cross. And that's what is on display of God's wisdom, is how he's saving man by taking his son to the cross. So I ask you just to go a little further with me. Think further. What did the cross institute, beloved? What was it that the cross brought to us when Jesus bared his cross and he went into that ground and he came up on the third day? What was it that began after Christ died on Calvary, rose again on the third day, and then ascended into heaven on the 50th day? What was it? What was the one thing that all of history is written about that began at that time? Should have been a multiple choice test. It's the church. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1, just briefly. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. 
It's in Luke. Luke wrote Acts. You know that, right? Luke wrote Luke and Luke wrote Acts. You guys know that. Yeah, I know you do. But it's in his explanation of his writing that we find something very valuable, I think. Uh, he writes, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do. That was in his gospel of the book of Luke. I wrote down what everything that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. But all of Acts is going to tell you what Jesus is doing through his church. It is the church age that was instituted. It was the cross that brought about the church age as Jesus went into the ground, rose on the third day, and then 50 days later, he ascended into heaven. What began? That was the church. That brought forth the death of death and shame of shame, the cross did. The shame to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places that followed the prince of the power of the air, the devil, and is displayed as a manifold wisdom of God. It's the church age, and now the church displays the manifold wisdom of God for all of creation to see and take note of God's wondrous manifold wisdom to expose the lies of the enemy and defeat and destroy all evil. And this is what? Um, this is what? Stay with me here. Stay with me. This is exposing of the enemy's lies. This exposing of the enemy's lies is what is taking place every day in front of those who have eyes to see it. And it is the wisdom of God because it is found in the church, the redeemed, beloved, you, who understand those lies, that they're empty and they only lead to death. It is the church that does not take the bait of secularism. It is the church and the understanding it holds of this great defeat of Satan and their refusal to believe the lies of this culture that can by their living as saints, it is in their living, make known the manifold wisdom of God because we can refuse the lie. We know it is a lie. We know it leads to death and we can live a life of obedience to God. We stand as that witness of that lie. Christ or chaos, the great capitulation and collapse of the secular society all around us is real. And it intersects with what God is doing in this world. He is exposing the lies of Satan and gender confusion. My goodness. Some of the things that are being said are beyond believable. That a trans man can birth a child. That a boy can be a girl. They're beyond a pale. It's exposing the lies in abortion. It's exposing the lies in feminism. It's exposing the lies in the destruction of the family. More specifically, the lie that there's a neutral sphere called secularism even to be found. There is no such thing as a nuclear sphere of secularism or a neutral teaching whereby we can educate and live a civil, civil life apart from God and religion. It doesn't exist folks. And every day, the failure of their plan shines forth the wisdom of God. Perhaps this is the greatest of all lies that's been told in the last 150 years, is that secularism is neutral and not a religion, but it is based on the lies of the enemy, because apart from God, chaos ensues. But that lie is now being exposed by the workings of the wisdom, being stripped bare, stripped naked of God through the testimony of the church in the world. That lie is being defeated by our lives, by our living, by our loving one another, by our obedience to God. Every day it stands as a testimony to the powers that be above and consequently to the powers that work in this world. Second proposition is just this. Because the church displays the manifold wisdom of God, 
Her mission is to save the world. Don't get too excited about that. Because the church displays the manifold wisdom of God, her mission is to save the world. You can save the world. I know, call me naive. Stick with me. What is the wisdom that the church displays? It's belief in the gospel, right? And I will tell you, it is just this. It displays the powerful workings of God at Calvary to destroy evil. And it displays the powerful working of God to make men into new creations. Not only men into new creation, but God's promises. This is what the resurrection is about. To make all creation new. To save the world. That's what God is doing. He's making all creation new. It continually witnesses the defeat of death to the dead angels and the newness of life to the living angels. By the way, she lives on, uh, by the way we live, by the way that she lives, the church lives and worships here on earth. Because the rulers and authorities understand the plan of God from the beginning to the end. They already know of their defeat and all they have is lies. And they continue to voice these lies on the lost, unlike us, who, in seeing uh, the raging evil, often feel defeated. I mean, what can I do as one man to display the wisdom of God and defeat evil in this world and to save it? When my car payments are due and I have to go off to work, right? Let's get very practical about that. How can I, being the church, save this world? And that's that, that pull and that tug, right? You need to remember that uh, uh, God didn't write your car payments anywhere into his redemptive history. It's a part of how you're living here, and it's a part of how you're living in the world. He's still calling you to be the church as you confess his son, Jesus Christ. But I'm glad you asked the question, how can I do those things? Because that is the truth here, that you expose the lie, and it is done by the way you live. Here's the issue. What we see and what we believe is not aligned. And this is what causes the fear of I spoke earlier. When we look at the world too much, we begin to see the world winning. But if we look at God's promises and redemptive history, we know that that's just not true. We need to stay in balance there. And I believe most of the church does believe that the victory is already ours in Jesus Christ. I believe that you saints believe that here. But it gets out of sync with our work and our life, and we have to balance that somewhere. But when we look into the world, it sure doesn't seem like evil will ever be abated and the world be saved. Why is that? Because there's a multitude of lost people, beloved, who believe the lies of the devil. Turn with me just momentarily back to Ephesians 2. And what you're going to recognize is that we all came out of this evil. Again, Paul being our illustration and God's work in his life. Verse 1, chapter 2, book of Ephesians. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We all were, right? You were dead. Paul's saying this to this Ephesian congregation, saying, you too were dead in your trespasses and sin. Once you once walked, you followed the course of this world. You believed the lies of the enemy. You followed the prince of the power of the air, right? You see that there, the spirit that's now still at work in all the sons of disobedience, among whom once we all lived by the passions, that's the word pathos in the Greek. I love the comparative there, the passions, by the pathologies of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Oh my goodness. That's who we once were. That's who the world around us still is. That's why the world looks like it does, yet we have the understanding that that's already defeated. That means in our understanding, we have the good news of the gospel to tell the ones that are defeated every day that are caught up in the lies of the enemy that 
that don't know the truth about the gospel that we have the right to tell them because that is what unblinds their mind. Go with me to 2 Corinthians 4, 4, just a few pages back to your left. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. No, go back to verse 3. Chapter 4, verse 3. Paul writes these words. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are dying. In their case, uh, verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Wait a minute. Who is it that lives on this earth, that life, so that they can see by our example that they can be unblinded? It's the church. It's the church that has the gospel. It's the church that has the good news. It's the church that can release them from heaven or from hell into heaven by the good news of the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Remember, we have the keys to the kingdom. Uh, Jesus told Peter there in Matthew chapter 16 at the end of that passage, he said, and the gates of hell will not prevail, and I have given you the keys of king. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. We have the ability to free them from the darkness and the lies. We have that ability. That is the wisdom of God. He is working through his church to create a witness of the goodness of the gospel in the life of this world. We are that witness. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts 26. This is probably the, one of the more beautiful passages. It is Paul retelling for the third time what happened to him on the road to Damascus. I guess we have time to read the whole thing. Do you guys want to stay longer? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's dangerous to answer that question for you visitors. Uh, amen. All right. No, uh, verse 12. It won't take but a minute. I just want to set this in context. Because this is the third telling. This is the third telling. This is where I started. This is God taking the evil out of Paul. God did not fret, Psalms 37. God did not wring his hands and say, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I, I created Paul to write all the New Testament or 13 books of it. I created him to be a great, uh, a great missionary to the Gentiles. And oh, he's not doing that. He's, he's killing Christians instead. How much worse? God never frets. God's plan is never thwarted. God has never gotten off track. He has known this from the beginning. He will carry it out to the end. It is the promise that he gives to us, the defeat of death. So it's in this Damascus Road experience we see some of the greatest truth of what Paul was given to do. Verse 12, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus. And in this connection, in other words, he had papers from Jerusalem to kill and to persecute those of the way, as it says in Acts chapter 9. I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief of priests. Oh, it was a methodical murder that he was into. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun. It shone around me and those who journeyed with me. It was the glory of God's what it was. Verse 14, and when he had fallen to the ground, blinded by the light of Jesus Christ, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, who are you? Lord. And the Lord said, I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. Remember, we, we talked about this passage. If we persecute the church, we persecute Jesus himself. But this is the message that Paul was given. This is the hope that we have. This is the life of the church. He says, rise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Here's the purpose. To appoint you as a servant 
and witness to the things in which you have seen in me and to those which I shall appear to you, delivering you, delivering you. We saw that in Ephesians 3, how he was delivered from a sinful state through this encounter with Jesus. That's how we're all delivered, right? We have an encounter with Jesus. From your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. Verse 18. What is it you're to do, Paul? Is to open their eyes. Open their eyes to what, right? The eyes that are blinded. The minds that are blinded. Open their eyes to the lies that they're buying. To the lies of the enemy. Open their eyes to the defeat of Satan. To the defeat of death. To the defeat of evil. Look around. Look at these people. That promises life. Feminism. Abortion. Uh, pornography, drugs, alcohol addiction, violence, that all promises good things, but it turns into death to open their eyes so that they may turn from the dark to the light, from the power of Satan to the power of God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's the great work of the gospel. That's the great work of Jesus Christ that he purchased on the cross of Calvary. Here is the overturning of the lies of Satan intersecting with the wisdom of God in the gospel to remove the man from evil to good, from dark to life, from death to life, and hold right there from death to life, from the lies of the enemy about his power over death, man is released from those lies to what? To living. So it's the church, beloved. As I said earlier, it's the beautiful refractory organism by which God's glory shines into it, all of his wisdom, and it refracts out of this beauty to illumine the multifaceted manifold glory of God. It is the wisdom in the gospel. And to the good angels, Peter says, they long to look into these things. They're so marvelous. The angels who were there when God spoke the Son into existence still marvel most at what God's doing in the church. And you just drill down on that wisdom just momentarily of the gospel. How a God who is holy and righteous could redeem a man as sinful as me. Think about that. I don't think that that's something that he thought about just momentarily. I think that that is the center of the focus of all of redemptive history. I think that if you think about it enough that nothing else truly matters in this world except that one thing about what God did in the gospel. Because it's what God did. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin. That is, he sent his perfect son, his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to this place some 2,000 years ago in time, promised before the foundations of the world so that he could be born of a virgin, he could live a life to be tested with every sin that I'm tested with, and to never fail one time, yet go to the cross as a perfect sacrifice with all my sins upon his back that day on Calvary. And God crushed him under the weight of that sin. Listen to me, if you want to look at something that that sets forth wisdom, knowledge, and revelation, you begin to look in the marvelous mystery of the gospel, and you decide for yourself someday that you've got that figured out. Because God is giving us an eternity to glory in the marvel of that wisdom. And he's given us a life to live here that shows us that. This is how we save the world, by the way. Not that I want to make that a secondary thing, but... This is exactly how we save the world. We expose the lie and live the life. Let's just boil it down to something simple. By our living as the church of Jesus Christ, in a world full of chaos, we expose the lie and we live the life. You want to do that? Expose the lie and live the life. And that life begins with mission. Matthew 28, 
Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. There's no authority above his authority. Ephesians 1 says that he's at the right hand of God, placed above every authority that's ever been named, every dominion that has ever been, every kingdom. He is king. He is Lord. This is how we say the world. Paul goes on in Ephesians 6, and he tells us just quickly at the end of the book of Ephesians what these understandings about if you begin in verse 10 finally he says be strong in the lord and the strength of his might put on the whole armor of god that you may be able to stand against the schemes of who the devil that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places What does this look like, saints? Well, very practically and very simply, in our living, we defeat his lies each and every day. Do you believe what the Bible teaches? Do you? Yeah, that's, count your words there. Because the next question is, are you living like what the Bible teaches is true? If you believe what the Bible teaches, you get a firm grasp on that and on the promises of God. And the work of the church, you're going to believe that it can save the world, that God is doing that work. He's doing that through the wisdom that he's placed in the church. It makes a testimony to the powers in the heavens and powers on earth. You understand what you see around you as the perversion of the enemy and the life, and then begin to live by what Scripture says, and be careful and watch what happens next, because the Lord will bless that. I read the obedience passage from Deuteronomy 28 this morning purposefully. Because his promises to our obedience are those great blessings. Let me tell you this. Let's just set just a small picture and I'm going to leave you alone for the rest of the day. Put a couple hundred people in this auditorium on a Sunday morning, maybe a couple hundred fifty in this sanctuary on the Lord's Day that grasp this truth about what God's doing through his church. People that are unafraid, unashamed to believe God's promises and be prepared for the spiritual battle that's taking place all around. You put that people here gathered on the Lord's Day, singing psalms, shouting out his promises, singing in victory over all of the lies in this world, making melody in their hearts to the Lord, giving thanks for what God has done in Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, things are going to change in Pennsville, New Jersey. You believe that? Things will change. Add to that, add to that, a testimony of 100 or 150 kids over there in that school. Every day they walk in, they're being catechized so that they know the truth of God's word. And they're able to efficiently discern the will of God and put away the lies of the enemy. That they're willing to live for God, work for God, seeking all that is true, good, and beautiful understanding they were created to glorify him, to go after everything that's true, good, and beautiful, to fulfill the covenant made and continues through to today, to be fruitful, multiply, fill, and subdue the earth and have dominion over it in Christ. Things will change. Add to that men loving their wives. This is what the living looks like. It's always about you men, isn't it? Men loving their wives like Christ loved the church and giving themselves up for their families and leading their homes on a spiritual plane like they should and in their church leading and in their community leading. Further, wives loving and submitting to their husbands out of reverence for Christ and teaching the young women, as it says in Titus, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. And watch what happens next. Beloved, the saints 
and their living testimony can save the world. So powerful that when we live like this, in the face of the lies of the enemy, we show forth the understanding that the devil has been defeated in such a way. It's as if it were David standing there on the battlefield that day holding up the severed head of Goliath. Blood dripping. Holding it high for all the men to see that day. That the enemy, the giant, is defeated. His head is in my hand. It's as if Christ standing on the cross. It is finished. Death, hell, and the grave are defeated. Go, make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even until the end of the age. It is finished. Gracious Heavenly Fathers, we come to a close today. We see the promises and the glory of your word. We feel the strong command of Scripture to live our lives in that glory. Although sometimes we don't live up to that, but we are that. In fact, Even in our failure to live up to it on a day-to-day basis, it shows forth your truth to redeem us, dust us off, and start us again anew. What glory we have in the gospel, what glory we have in the good news, that Satan, death, hell are all defeated, and that we can live, live eternally on the promises that you've given us, and shine forth the wisdom of the glory of God and the people that he's redeeming, his church, his beloved son's bride. Father, work in the hearts of your people today. As they read your promises, build in them a dependency. Help them to be unashamed, unafraid. Help them to live lives of victory in this world of defeat and death. Help them to shine forth that wisdom. Encourage them every day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, if the men who are going to help with the table this morning come forward.